The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. So you guys know the quiz is cumulative, right? Everything all the way back from lecture one. So I would look at all the lectures and all the p-sets and look at all the stuff that we taught you, so data structures, algorithms, everything, and at least be able to know for every one of them what's the name, what it does, and what's the running time. Proofs and how it does it might be harder, but at least be able to call it as a black box and argue about the running times. So I have a DP problem, and I have a non-DP problem. Which problem would you like me to start with? Okay. Do you guys know the saying of if a woodchucker would chuck wood, how much wood would a woodchucker chuck? <laughs> Today we're going to chuck wood. So we have a piece of wood that is L meters long. And we have N markings. So say the first mark is at 3 meters. The second mark is at 5 meters, so on and so forth. M3, M4, all the way up to Mn. So we want to cut this piece of wood at all the markings. The thing is, the woodchucker doesn't work for free. If you give it a piece of wood of length L, and you ask it to cut it at some marking, you're going to get two pieces of wood, length L1 and L2. The price for this is L1 times L2. So we like woodchucker, but woodchuckers, but we also like our wallets. So we want to cut this up by paying the minimum amount of money. Ring the bell. So I'll let you guys think for a minute, then I'll give you the running time, then we'll start talking. So we usually give you running times on quizzes. The running time is why you should know all the problems and their matching running times. Because the moment we give you a running time, you can automatically eliminate all the things that don't match and just focus on a few things. So we're going to have to cut it at all the markings eventually. But the order in which you cut is important. So if I cut here first, then I'm going to pay 3 times L minus 3. Whereas if I cut in the middle first, I'm going to pay uh, whatever this is, M3 times L minus M3. So we're trying to decide the order. Does this look like any familiar problem? Well, it's very confusing. DP, right? DP, that, that is good. I did say that we're going to start with a DP problem. So this is DP. <laughs> it's a good start. Lecture. 
Yeah, exactly. No, uh, yeah. So, it is not like any problems on the recitations. So far, recitations all did, yeah. So, so far, recitations did prefixes and suffixes. We're going to solve this using a running time of n cubed, which is like the, pro the parentheses problem. It should be what you said, but I don't know how to spell that. So we're going to go for this instead. So running time n cubed. The moment I said this, you guys should know that this is the only n cubed problem that we have in lecture notes. So make sure to have those on the cheat sheets and try to understand them, right? OK. So given that I've said this, you should know the solution now. To make sure everyone is with me, we're going to go through the solution, though. So what is a subproblem? OK. OK. So this is how you think of it informally. When you write it up, I want to see this. I want to see dp of something means something. So how you fill out your dp table? It's really useful to write this up on your exam before because one, this will help you write the recursion correctly, and two, if the grader sees this, they might skim over the recursion completely and then you might have bugs there, we might not see them, good for you. So this says how you're going to fill out the table, right? dp of something equals something. What's in a dp table? Numbers. It's never how to do something, it's always a number, so it's always the maximum profit or the minimum cost or the shortest distance or the longest something. So it's always a number. So what do we do here? Start to end dp. Start location to the end location is. OK, so we're going to give them indices, right? We usually do i, j, k, and whatever else it takes. So start to end is? The min cost of cutting that up. Minimum cost of? Cutting up the wood board from marking I all the way to marking J. Well, there's a tiny problem here that the initial, there's no problem for this big piece of wood. Right? If I can only consider the board from I to J, so if I can only consider the board from marking 1 to marking n, then I get this. So this part and this part get left out. Exactly. We add fake markings. m0 is 0, and mn plus 1 equals l. Very good. No. So these are numbers. If they were evenly spaced, I think there's an algorithm. You might come up with a math and say, there, you always cut it up like this. So why we solve this? You guys have candy, right? So you should eat the candy and be energetic and everything. So min cost of cutting up the board from marking i to marking j. I like this. 
have this on your exam if possible, because this will make our life easier, and it's going to make your life easier when you get to the next step, which is how do we compute dp of ij? So suppose I'm looking at the subboard from m1 to m4. So I'm looking at only this. How do I compute the best way to cut the board from m1 to m4? What are my options? The locations you can cut it. Exactly. So in order to cut this up, I can either make a first cut at M2, and then, so say I make my first cut here, and then I recursively cut this and cut this. Or the other alternative is take the same guy, M1, M2, M3. M4, cut it at M3, and then recursively cut this and recursively cut this. So I'm iterating over all the markings inside the board. Now suppose I'm cutting it. Yes? Yeah, when I recurse, that takes care of it. So suppose I'm looking at M1 through M4, and I'm cutting it. at M2. What's the total cost? So what's the best way to cut, given that I know I'm going to cut there? The sum of the DPs. OK, so it's the best way to cut M1. M1 through M2 plus best way to cut M2 through M4. Plus the price I'm paying for this cut, right? Not just the sum of the DPs. One more term. What's this term? 4 minus 1. Or the location of 4 minus location. So 4 minus 1. Not quite, almost. So if I'm cutting a board into two pieces, the cost is the product of the length of the two pieces. M2 minus M1 times, yep. OK, why did I bother doing this? Some people think better with concrete numbers. If that's the case, then, well, give yourself an example. Write some numbers on your sheet of paper. Then see where, what letters match to what numbers and copy it up using letters. And there you go. You've solved the problem. So. Where's, where are i and j here? What? Well, i would be 1. OK. So this is i. That's j. That's j. Cool. So let's try to write it up now. So in order to cut the board from i to j, what am I doing? So what am I computing? Usually, the first word in your subproblem definition is the function that you're going to use. So it's minimum, and I'm going to iterate over something. DP of i to, I guess it would be all of j. Right? So it's DP of i and j, and you're looking through So j. I'm computing DP of ij. 
Oh no, of J minus. Well, J minus I like yeah. J minus. There's a K, right? I need I need a new variable for where I'm gonna cut up, right? So fortunately, we have a lot of letters in the alphabet: I, J, K, so on and so forth. L, M. So, so let's say that K is the place where we cut to make our life easy. So I'm going to have dp of well, i is the starting point. OK. And then endpoint is i plus k. Right. So where is k? What's k here? k is an actual number. It's, it's not the offset. It's the actual number. So it should be like i to k. It depends how you define k. So I'm going to make my life easy and define k as exactly the marking at which I cut. Oh, OK, then just k then. k is this 2 here. And this is easier, trust me. OK, plus? OK. And? Other way around, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So now what, where does k go? We have to uh, come up with numbers for That's the loop, right? Between j, from, between i and j. So j minus i? J minus It's just 4k and i to j. Yeah. Or i, yeah. So if I have, if I have uh, the board from 1 to 4, do I cut it 1? Oh. I can, but that's kind of weird. Because I'm recursing on the same subproblem. Oh. By the way, if you try to recurse to the same subproblem, what are you going to get as your running time? Infinite. Infinite. <laughs> so let's not do that. <laughs> so we're going to go from? So going from i would be bad. So i plus 1. 2? j minus 1. Very good. Would it be like? So k is which marking I'm cutting at. I never want to oh. cut inside the marking. Hell, I don't even know these are integers, so. No, like would it be called, oh, k is now. So k is which marking? i, j, and k are which marking I'm cutting at. Right, these are the only discrete things I have. This board is all filled with uh, real numbers. So if I want to cut somewhere here, that's a real number. I don't like that. I want to have integers. So my markings help me get integers. I only want to cut at the marking, so I always look at my problem in terms of which marking I'm cutting at. So this always iterates over markings. So this looks very much like the parentheses problem, right? Same subproblems, roughly the same recursion. Turns out that these problems where you're not considering suffixes or prefixes, but rather you're considering substrings, are reasonably hard to come by and reasonably hard to solve. So if we give these to you, chances are they're going to be exactly like the parentheses problem, except for the cost function. This isn't what we had in the parentheses problem, right? So you should be prepared to solve problems that look exactly like the parent problem, but might have a different cost function. And this is how we solve them. Okay. Can you say that like the 
NYC determines which type of DP like example we use. Does that mean that like this uh, a subproblem a problem can be solved using any of the DP like examples? Um, it's just that the only thing that changes is the complexity. Um. I don't think you can, you can map every approach onto every problem. For example, if you try to map prefixes onto this, you'd come up with a, with a solution that doesn't look at all the possible choices. So your answer would be suboptimal. Okay. So you'd come up with a fast but incorrect algorithm. However, if you take the problem of uh, find the shortest, the longest increasing subsequence, you can definitely apply this technique to it. It's more general than suffixes or prefixes. So it's going to work, but it's going to be slower. So in theory, what you should do is you have all these techniques. Given a problem, you try all the techniques. You see which ones apply. And out of those, you see which one gives you the best running time. In practice, if we give you the running time, you match it to the techniques that match the running time. You start backwards from the stuff that you know. OK. Does this problem make sense? Sweet. Now let's do a hard problem. Do people remember hashing? You have one minute to remember hashing while I raise the board. <laughs> so suppose we want to implement a set. Uh, the way we're going to implement a set is we have n elements. We're going to put them into the set. So for i goes from 1 through n, we're going to insert element i. So first, we're going to insert all the elements into the set. And then after that, given a random number, we want to see, is it in the set or not? So for some other number, uh, I used n before. So let's use, for some other number f, we want to see, is f in the set or is f not in the set? What data structure would you use normally for this? A hash table, right? You stick everything into a hash table. Then you try to find the elements. If you find them, then you say yes. If not, then you say no. Well, it turns out that this would take more memory than what we have. So instead, we're going to do this. We're going to have a hash table of m bits. So these are m bits. And say we have a hash function that satisfies uniform hashing. So given any element, the value is anywhere from 0 to m minus 1, and they're all independent. So the way we're going to insert an element is this table is t. We're going to say that t of h of ai equals 1. So this is a table of bits. For every element, we hash the element, and we set the corresponding bits to 1. So we're going to have some 1s and some zeros in the table. Say if this is ei, it hashes somewhere here. OK, so the question is, we inserted n elements into a table of size m. Given a new element, f, where f stands for false positive, 
f is not one of the elements that we inserted. I want to know what's the probability that the set will say that the element is in the set. So basically, the probability of a false positive. What do we do with our questions? Nothing. I mean, is it chaining, or is it open addressing? Does it even matter? So we're not inserting the elements into the table. This table only has bits. The elements are lost completely after we insert them. So the trade-off is this uses a lot less memory. Instead of having to store entire elements, you just store bits. Uh, on the downside, you're going to have false positives. Because if I have a different element, say f, if it matches, if it hashes to the same location, then the set is going to say, yeah, it's in the set. So you get false positives. Will you get false negatives? No, right? Because you only set, you start out with a table of zeros, and you only set the table to ones for elements, uh, for the numbers that match to hashes of elements that are in the set. You have a question? OK. OK, do we understand the problem before we attempt to solve it? Probably like 1 over m. You'd wish. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's less than n over m. OK, I like that. So um, what are you thinking? I mean, if, if there were no collisions previously, then it would be equal to n over m. But if there are collisions, uh, probably collisions. So. OK, I'm going to open up a window in your head and tell everyone else the small steps you took to get here. So we have this new number f. How are we going to check if it's in the set or not? We're going to compute h of f, and we're going to check if t of h of f is 0 or 1. f is different from all the other elements. So its hash value is independent from all the other hash values we had before. We don't really care about this anymore after we have the independence assumption. So h of f is just some random position in the table. So the question is, given some random position in the table, will that be a 0 or a 1? How do you know? If I knew how many 1s I have in the table, if I have k 1s in the table, and automatically this means m minus k zeros, then what's the probability that h of f will point to a 1? Yep. So the hash takes m possible values. k of them are 1s. So the probability that the hash is going to guess a 1 is k over m. So if we knew how many 1s we have, then this is the answer. We know that we're going to have at most n 1s. That's what you're thinking, right? So k is definitely smaller or equal to n. So the answer definitely has to be smaller or equal than n over m. Now, if you're in a rush, you might say, well, we inserted n elements, so we're definitely going to have n1s here. That is not true. The hashes of all the elements are independent. 
So there is some probability that two elements will hash to the same value. And as the number of elements grows, that probability also grows. OK, so now by looking at this, we got rid of this part of the problem. We don't care that there's a new element. We don't care that it's a false positive. All that we care about is how many ones do we have in the table after inserting n values. Well, what's that? That's um, m times the probability that a slot in the table is 1. Right? The probability that a slot in the table is 1 is k over m. So if we know this probability and we multiply it by m, then we get k. People still with me? And what is that variable representing? H? This is k. Okay. It represents that my handwriting sucks, basically. <laughs> I mean, I mean like, why do we do m times the probability? That's uh, the expected number of ones in the table? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is e of k, I guess. So then our final answer is this thing divided by m. So answer is the expected value of k, or you can just think of it as the average value of k, divided by m. So this is m times this probability divided by m. So it is exactly this probability. So the thing that we want to focus on is, what's the probability that a random slot in the table is a 1? Because the 1 minus probability that it was never fixed. Exactly. It's the first thing we do. 1 minus the probability that a slot is 0. This is easy, right? Like, this looks easy. But this makes a huge difference. Because once we're here, well, a slot is 0 if none of the insertions made it a 1. And the insertions are all independent. So this is like you have, uh, you're flipping a coin. What's the probability that after you flip it 10 times, you never get ahead? So this is 1 minus. That so a slot is 0 means that no number was inserted in it. We're inserting n numbers. So it's the probability that a single number was not inserted in the slot. raised to the power of n. So we have n independent experiments, right? Every time you insert a number into the hash function, that's one experiment. The hash function gives you independent values for all the elements. So all the insertions are independent of each other. 
if in a single insertion you've hit that slot, then you've made it a 1, game over. So the slot is only a 0 if none of the insertions make it a 1. So you take the probability that an insertion doesn't make it a 1, and you raise it to the power n, because that has to happen n times in order for the whole thing to be successful. And the probability that the number was not inserted in a slot is 1 minus the probability that it was inserted. Right? We're doing this again. 1 minus probability that a number hits. Well, what's this probability? Uniform hashing. 1 over m. So this whole thing is 1 minus 1 minus 1 over m to the power n. 1 minus m minus 1 over m to the power n. So first off, the point of the problem, it's our problem, right? Don't panic. Don't be angry. You're not going to have something this hard on the exam. The point of this is I want to go through probabilities a little bit, and I want to go through hashing and the math behind hashing, because remembering that will be useful. OK, so now you said you're having trouble with this step. OK. So let's see. Let's do this here. So we have this table here, right? And we have n elements, e1, e2, e3, all the way through en. How do we put them in the table? We hash each of them, and each of them maps to a random slot in the table. right? So if these are the slots, then e1 might map here, e2 might map here, e3 might map here, e4 might map here, so on and so forth. So I have arrows, right? Every, every time I do a hash, that's going to set something to a 1. The numbers don't necessarily map to different slots, because each number on its own maps to a random slot. So these are all going to be 1s, and everything else becomes 0. If no number maps to a slot, it is 0. OK, let's look at one slot, any slot. So say I'm looking at this slot over here. Can you guys see, by the way? OK, so let's look at this guy here. What's the probability that it's a 0? So the probability that the slot is a 0 is the probability that the first number didn't map to it. right? Otherwise, it would be a 1. E1 didn't hash to that slot. E2 also couldn't match to that slot, right? So it's the probability that E1 didn't hash to the slot, and crap, E2 didn't hash into the slot, and 
E3 didn't hash into the slot, so on and so forth, right? All the way up until EN didn't hash to the slot. Does this make sense? Now, these are all independent events because all the hashes are independent by the uniform hashing assumption. So then I can turn ends into products. So I can say that this equals to the probability that E1 didn't hash into the slot times the probability that E2 didn't hash into the slot times the probability that E3 didn't hash into the slot, so on and so forth, all the way to the probability that EN didn't hash. All the probabilities, so since I'm dealing with the same hash function, turns out that all the probabilities are the same. So there, the probability that some fixed number didn't hash to the power n. So this is how I got from here to here. Probabilities and the properties of hashes and hashing assumptions. So you guys should have those on your cheat sheet. And maybe if you have time, review probabilities a bit. Um, so if e, e1 doesn't hash in that spot, isn't that probability 1 over m? Not quite. You're, you're close, but not quite. So you're saying that the probability that e1 doesn't hash to this slot is 1 over m? Or I guess it's 1 minus 1 over m. Exactly. Uh, the probability that it would hash here is 1 over m, because it has to pick that one slot out of impossible slots. But if you're just saying all I want is it, that it doesn't hash here, well, it means it can hash anywhere else. So it has m minus 1 options. It can go to any of those m minus 1 places, just not to that one place. So m minus 1 over m. Let's see. Um, so I mean, it's, inter it's interesting that the other direction, like instead of saying it's 1, it's 1 minus it, like, so this wouldn't it be just as easy to go the other direction? No. No. Not doing this makes the problem hard. So that's why we're doing it. This kind, of <clears throat> this kind of flipping is easy to do conceptually, but it might make a hard problem into a really easy problem, or at least into a doable problem. So it is exactly the same in terms of the math, but yeah. computing this without turning it into this is really hard. Anything slot is one. Isn't it kind of like what we just said, except if the probability of any one mapping is 1 over m, like mapping to a 1, right? And then you take 1 over m raised to the n, that's the probability of it being a 1 at that one place, right? Mm, no, not quite. OK, so are we getting this? Somewhat? Yes? So the probability of false positive, you're saying that's what's the probability that you get a 1 if you actually, you actually should 
a zero is because multiple things map to that one slot, right? So the probability of a false positive is the probability that given a new element, when we hash it, we get the one. Yeah. The hash of that new element is independent of all the other hashes. So why is it simply probability that you get the one? Well, so if I have a new element, I'm going to compute its hash, yeah. and I'm going to look in the table. If I see a one, I'm going to say, oh. yeah. So it's something that was not in the set. OK, cool. OK, so let's see if we can do a harder version of this. So this probability isn't great. But um, if we do one trick, we can make this really nice. And this puts together a trick called Bloom filters that is used in all sorts of situations. So for Bloom filters, we still have n elements. And we still have a table of m bits. What changes this time is instead of having one function, we have k hash functions. So when we take an element and insert it, we're taking element i. The way to insert it is we're going to compute its hash value using all the hash functions. And set all the corresponding bits to 1. So insert ei becomes for k in Sorry, for j in 1 through k, the table bit corresponding to the hash function j of the element is 1. So each element sets k bits to 1. Now, how do we check if an element is in the table? Since for every element we set all the corresponding k bits to 1, now when we have a new element, we're going to compute the k positions. And if any of them is a 0, then we couldn't have possibly put that in the table. So all t of hj of f have to be 1. So for every element, we hashed it k times and set the corresponding bits. If we have a new element, and by hashing it, we get here and here, but we also get here, and this guy was a 0, well, we know we definitely didn't put this in. So now, what's the probability of a false positive? Oh, I forgot to say something, by the way. The k hash functions are all, I think they satisfy simple uniform hashing. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right thing. But 
they all have independent values from each other. So they're all independent. So for any number you give, any hash function returns the value that's independent of all the other hash functions, and they're all 0 to n minus 1. Why is it not that just raised to something? Because we know the probability. Well, OK, actually, we need to recalculate that. So it's the probability that all of them are 1, even though you haven't hashed them. So the false positive, the probability of false positives is the probability that all the case slots that correspond to f are ones, right? So since the hash, since the hash functions are all independent, this is the probability that one slot is a one raised to the power k. Right, because they're all independent slots. So it's the probability that one slot is a 1 raised to the power k. OK, so now what's the probability that one slot is a 1? It looks a lot like this problem, right? Except there's a tweak. How many times did we put a 1 in the table? So here we put. Here we put a 1 in the table for every element. So we have n, uh, n sets, right? So, so n times we're going to set t of something to 1, right? For every element, we have one set. We set one bit to 1. It might have been set before. That's something else. Yes? Um, yeah, pretty much. So here for every element, we hash it through all the k functions and set the corresponding bits through one, to 1. So one element generates k set operations. And we have n elements total. So we set n k bits to 1. Does this make sense? Can two hash functions point to the same slot? Sure. Sure. But they're all independent, and that's the only thing that matters. So every time we do, we set a bit. Which bit we set is independent of all the other bits we set. Because all the hash functions are independent, and all the values are independent of each other. So this time we have, the table size is still m, so that didn't change. This time we set n bits to 1. This time we set nk bits to 1. So then the right thing to do is copy this answer and replace n with nk. And if you'd have to write a proof, you'd copy paste the proof and replace n with nk. So this is 1 minus m minus 1 over m times nk. And of course, you should go through the whole thing in your head and convince yourselves that this is true. Let's say one element is what? k something? Sets. Sets. Bit sets. So one element sets k bits in the table. Not necessarily different bits, 
just independent bits. So if you have n elements, all together they set n times k bits. So you do um, this thing gets run n times k times. Whereas here, the set operation gets run n times in total. That's the difference in the two problems. Right here you have one hash function for each element. Here you have k hash functions. This is hard, right? Well, it's, it's the hardest hashing problem that I could think about, and that makes us go through probabilities and through all the hash stuff. The problems on the exam will be easier. So one, don't panic. Two, review hashing, review probabilities. If when I said, oh, from the theory, this is what you get, if you didn't understand that, then please review the theory. Because we did down there, if we replace n with nk, then we just get everything except. So this thing in here is the answer to the previous problem. Yeah. Except you take an n and you replace it with an nk. Mm -hmm. So this is the probability that one bit is set to one. But here when you're given an element, you're going to hash it through the k functions. You take this guy. You're going to hash it through the k functions, mm -hmm. and you're going to check all the bits. So you're going to check k bits. Mm -hmm. So as long as any of the k bits is a 0, not a false positive. So we need all the k bits to be a 1. Then it becomes intractable. Yeah, so the way, so you want to reduce these problems to independent hashing. If you look at the proofs, all the proofs assume uh, uniform hashing, simple uniform, whatever it takes to get the math down to independence. Because this is the only thing that we know how to solve with probabilities. If everything is independent, then things multiply and add up in the right places, and everything is easy. If things are dependent, then proofs become really, really hard. So whenever you have dependent things, you want to find a way to reduce that to independent things. Is everyone tired, or do you guys really not like this problem? By the way, really cool trick. So this turns out to be a lot better than that. And I think the optimal value of k is around square root of log n. And that gives you uh, some filters with a really low false positive rate. What do you mean by optimal? Uh, minimize the false positives. Um, so given n and m, Pick k so that the this thing is minimized. What was the answer again? I oh. think it's. Or actually, regardless of that, what 
what's the percentage of false positives? It depends on what your N and M are, right? The more bits you can afford. So, if, but if you maximize your K, you said you came up with some K that's maximized. Uh, then what's? I think K is. But. Let's not do the math. <laughs> it's really, really good. So this is, these are used for all sorts of practical problems, all the way from branch predictors in processors to databases. So is it like better than 1%? You know that, at least? Oh, yeah. They're, uh, for practical uses, this uh, gets you, I think, to 1% of 1% of 1%. So you usually put a bloom filter before a really expensive check. And the bloom filter gets rid of most of the false positives. And then you have a few more where you do the expensive check. OK, does this make sense? Any questions? Um, would it be more optimal if you repeated this bloom filter independently of the other one with more hash functions in that memory structure? I think doubling the doubling the memory size is better. So two filters is the same as having two n bits. I think doubling gives you better results always. Okay, so general stuff. We're going to have a lot of conceptual questions. So please make sure, again, make sure that for everything that we did, go through the problem, understand the problem, know that there is a solution, know the running time, maybe know how to implement the solution. Don't worry so much about the proof. We're going to have some problems where you have to come up with new things on your own. So get a good night's sleep before the exam. Really, like if you have five hours left and you have to choose between sleeping five hours or reading notes for five hours, it's not going to help. So, so caffeine actually helps you stay up, but it decreases your performance. And yeah, so if you're on caffeine, you're not going to think. You can regurgitate stuff, but you can't think. So caffeinating yourself is a. I thought it was like it gives you concentration. So there's an optimum amount of sleep and caffeine combination. If you don't sleep and caffeinate yourself, I guarantee that you will not solve any of the problems that require new algorithms. So the thing is, the memory is going to be better. If, uh, if all you're doing is memorization stuff, then it's going to be better. Yeah. So you're going to do well on the pattern matching stuff. But when your brain is panicking, you're not going to come up with new solutions, right? Usually, you have a problem, a hard problem, you're thinking about it, and then at some point when you're relaxed, like when you're in the shower or when you wake up, you're like, crap, I found a solution. So the brain finds solutions when it's relaxed, not when it's like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. And adrenaline gets it in that mood. That's, that's what it does. And that's what caffeine does in the end. So a little bit of caffeine might help you get up and get you running, but don't caffeinate yourself to not sleep the entire night. That's probably going to make you bomb the hard questions. Good luck on Friday. Eat candy. <laughs>